So back to Psalm 1. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we had our stellar-themed vacation Bible school, and each night had a specific focus about how to shine the light of Christ. And each night was accompanied by a special character. And the first night, we were introduced to this character called Cosmo, uh, not Kramer, but the, the uh, Cosmo the star. And in a fun little video, the kids, kids learned all sorts of different facts about the stars. And one in particular was called Polaris. Does anyone know another name for Polaris? Yes, the North Star. Well, well done. So the North Star, it's, it's a unique star that is unlike any others. I was actually transfixed by this little kid's video. I was like, whoa. And it's a con it, because it's unlike other stars because it's a constant and relatively fixed star. It doesn't orbit the other way, the, the, rotate the, like the other stars around it. And it's really situated right above the North Pole. And so for, for sailors, for explorers, astro uh, astronomers, and, and others, the North Star for centuries has been an important and useful reference point. As worshipers of God, God's word is, at an, is like the North Star. And in the past several weeks, we've been listening to what God's word says about particular elements of our worship gatherings. Uh, this week, we're looking to the North Star, to God's Word. Pastor Michael preached last week about the significance and the, the premium that we put on the preaching of God's Word. This week, we're going to consider the reasons and value for reading God's Word together. Look back at Psalm 1 with me. Now, the book of Psalms is a, 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 was a hymnal of the Israelites and also a book of personal devotion. Within the Psalms, we find the full range of human experiences as well as an expression of every human emotion. Psalm 1 serves then as an entry point into the rest of the book. It's been said that, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the, Psalm, the book of Psalms is the largest book in the Bible. It's got 150 chapters. It's, it's separated into five books. So there's five books within the book of Psalms. And... Some commentators note, there's some debate about this, but some commentators note that each book is, corresponds with each book of the Torah, the first five books of, uh, of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, of the Old Testament. And in other ways, this was their personal devotion. The, the Psalms were a way that they would embody and, and, and take to heart the teachings and the, and the story of the Old Testament and, and, and weave them into their own story, their own lives, and find them as a way to internalize the truth and about who God is, what he has done, and, and their relationship and, and their role in that story. And so the Psalms actually still work in this similar way. And Psalm 1 then serves as this entry point. Charles Spurgeon said this about this psalm. He said it's a, it's a preface psalm. Having in it a notification, I think we have a quote. If not, you can just listen carefully having in it a notification of the contents of the entire book. It is the psalmist's desire to teach us the way to blessedness and to warn us of the sure destruction of sinners. This, then, is the matter of the first psalm, which may be looked upon in some respects as the text upon which the whole of the psalm makes up a divine sermon. So this saying that he's saying that this text is the entry point. It actually gives light to understand the whole rest of the Psalms. And it actually helps to understand the, the whole sermon that God is giving to us through the book of Psalms. So what is this Psalm 1 
What what does Psalm 1 say about this divine sermon? Specifically, how does it speak to us today? What does it have to teach us about with regards to corporately reading God's word? And I think primarily it teaches us that God's word in general, and Psalm 1 in particular, show us how to live and to walk with God through life. It shows us the blessed life. You know, you can, the hashtag blessed, right? That was a joke, thanks. You know, maybe you could put like the sound check on as you open the book of Psalms, like, ah, feeling good, like I should. Went and took a walk around the neighborhood, feeling blessed, never stressed, got that sunshine on my Sunday best. You know that song? That's like cheesy blessedness. That's like Instagram blessedness. Psalm 1 is teaching us about what does it mean to be truly this deeply rooted blessedness? What does it mean to know the good life? It's interesting that the book of Psalms, this book about human emotion, human experience, you know what it begins with? The first word? Blessed. And I think that's significant for a couple reasons. One is that Isn't that what we are all shooting for? Every worldview out there, every philosophy, every theology is aiming at one thing. What is the good life? And the psalmist goes, I'm not going to leave you hanging. Here it is. The first word is, here's what blessedness looks like. He says, this is how it is. The word blessed so say, how happy, how delighted, how full is the person who finds this way? Isn't that what we're looking for? You can look at every, just go to the one Barnes & Noble I think is left. But you can go and look at the self-help section. Even those that have no desire for God or, or his word, They're all aiming. What is the good life? In Scripture, the psalm points us to it. God is not disinterested in the particulars of your life. He's very interested. And he says, here's how to know blessedness. And that's what the psalm and God's word teach us. It teaches us more specifically how to walk in life with God. That's where true blessedness comes from. How do we know the God who made us? How do we walk with him? And in this way, the the psalmist actually teaches us how to walk, what this looks like, and how to use God's word as a means to, to understand, to find that way, to step into that way, and then to continue to walk in that way. And it does so, I think, by, by, by and we'll just highlight three ways this morning that our corporate reading of God's word is meant to, to, to teach us about this blessed life. First is that God's word confronts us. You know, like, if, 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 go back to that North Star. And now imagine in your mind that you were like this, you know, an explorer in the 1500s. That who... You're out to sea in the middle of the Atlantic. If you've ever been deep sea fishing, you know how disorienting being out at sea without any bearing on land is. And imagine that you're going and then you've lost 
your way. That clouds have covered. Storms have come. And, and, and you're just talking about, we're on the right course. And then what you see on a clear night, finally you see the North Star, and what you realize is that you've been off course. That confrontation is a good thing. I, for one, don't like confrontation. I, I, I don't like it. I don't like the uneasy feeling. But what I've learned more recently is sometimes it's really necessary. And sometimes it's really good. And not all confrontation is bad. Because when it's done correctly and when it's rightly understood, it's a way that we learn and recalibrate when we are out of line, out of step, or just lost. A few months ago, I was, um, I was at a wrestling uh, meet for Trevor's wrestling team in town, and I, I w was at a high school that I didn't know where to go, and I, I saw this other high school kid who was there for something else. I said, hey, do you know where the gym is? And he gave me a very complicated list of directions that included a lot of turns, and, and I started out, and, and the, immediately the first turn was a wrong one. And I ended up walking all around the school, and ultimately I came back to the kid, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you didn't go the right way. He's like, it would have been easier if you just said, hey, not that way. Like, he wait, we, we all waste the time because it didn't get corrected. Imagine if you're doing a math problem, and I can only do simple math, so it's just like adding. If you're adding like seven numbers, if you add the first two wrong, you should stop and go back and do the first two because you're going to get further and further off. Scripture doesn't leave us guessing, but it, it confronts us. And, and, and what we see in this psalm, it clearly outlines two ways of life. One way that leads to blessedness and the other way to devastation. And it begs the question of us, the reader, to ask, what path am I on? It's like the psalmist is holding up a mirror to our lives for us to take an honest, sober look. He said, blessed is the man or woman, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There are these two clear ways. The first is the way of the wicked, the way of sinners, the way of scoffers. In that, in that first part, the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, we can also say they follow the advice of those of the careless and ungodly. This is to say that that, that, that person that's walking in this way is allowing the wisdom of the world, the current principles of the age, the, the, the culture around us to guide us. It's, sometimes it's even passive. It's not, not always active pursuit of this way. It's just saying, I'm letting the world decide. I'm, I'm not really thinking. I'm passive in this. I'm letting, well, that's just what people are saying, so I'm just going to go with that. But, but we actually see this, this intensification of this way. It's not just following the advice. It's also then standing alongside of them. It, it's, it's not just about the word of advice or counsel, but it's now talking about lifestyle. The one who stands alongside sinners as comrades in arms. It's standing with an approving behavior that does not conform to God's way. It's making friends with those opposed to God. I want to make a distinction. It's not saying that Jesus ate with sinners, right? He was even a friend to sinners. 
But it's not, he didn't do so in an approving way of their behavior. Right? He still confronts them. Right? So, so this is those that are saying, no, I'm, a, in, I'm standing in agreement with that which is opposed to God. And lastly, the one that sits in the seat of scoffers, ultimately, it's taking one's seat among those who mock God, his ways, and his people, becoming antagonistic in thought, speech, and action. We can take a minute even just to think about our own lives. Where have I just followed the counsel of the, of the ungodly in my life? In the way that I set up my home. In the way that I react to problems. In the way that I engage with workers, pursue career. In the way that I self-medicate. Others, it's standing alongside of the sinners. It's going, eh, you know what? You can cut that corner. It doesn't really matter. Other times, it's like, you know what? Yeah, I can't stand those people either. And, and, and those Christians, man, yeah, you know, this is my kind of Christian. Those guys are the worst. You know what? I like this part of the Bible, but that part I'm going to cut out. I don't want to listen, God. I think you got it wrong. That's what we see. It's this way that's opposed to God. The other way is the life of blessing. This way stays clear of, of walking, standing, and sitting with the ungodly, seeking advice and camaraderie with them. Instead, they're guided by the north star of God's instruction, that his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his day, he meditates day and night. Look, we gather each week after wandering throughout the many ups and downs of life. And no doubt we get turned around, right? Like, we often, I think Christians often talk about culture and worldview as if, as if its influences don't affect us, that we stand outside of it. But the reality is we are swimming in the very same waters of everyone else. The same cultural bombardments, the same like kind of worldly things, the same things that are opposed to God are, are bombarding us on a daily basis too. And unless we take an honest look at the things that are biases, how does our culture and our background and our upbringing, how does that stand against what God's word is? What are our patterns? What are the rhythms of my life? What, am I, what are my habits? What am I turning to for my satisfaction and my joy and my, my blessing? What am I turning to? What are the habits when I... When I'm angry, when I'm frustrated, and we can take the easy ones. We can turn to a bottle and drink. We can turn to a computer and pornography. We can turn to raging at those that offended us. What are the habits? What are the intakes? What are you bringing into your life? And then how are you seeing that bear fruit in your life? Scripture is saying there are two ways, and it's asking us, what path are you on? It's meant to jolt us. It's not just words on a wall, friends. It's meant to jolt us into life. It's meant to confront us and say, what do I love? What am I valuing? What am I aiming at with my actions, my words, my mindset? What am I looking to fill me? What is my guiding light? 
And if you're anything like me, which I, I'm sure that you are, sometimes it's hard to take a long look. It's easier to be distracted. Our reading of Scripture corporately and even individually is meant to say we need to be honest with ourselves and before the Lord. It's meant to confront us where we are and say, where, what is guiding you? And when we are confronted and where we are walking away from the Lord instead of towards him, the appropriate response is repentance. And Randy read from 2 Corinthians, it's not just, oh man, I'm sorry, but it's a godly grief. No, this is the way towards death, not life. And it's a, an about face. It's a return to the way of, of life by turning back to the Lord. You see, reading scripture is not meant to just be passive. And I realize that sitting in a chair and having someone talk to you feels very passive. But that's not what it ought to be. This is a way that we are to engage together. It ought... We are to open ourselves up and allow God's word to confront us. And it's not to shame or to guilt. Rather, it's meant to give way to a beautiful invitation. And that's the second thing. First, we see that Scripture confronts us. And then two, Scripture invites us to know and walk in the good life. A life of flourishing. A life of wholehearted joy. Going back to that North Star... Be, you know, being led by a fixed point like the North Star. If you were that, that explorer again, remember, you, you know, I guess you could be Columbus or you can be Amerigo Vespucci, whoever one you want to name. But like, imagine seeing that North Star and navigating by its light. It doesn't hinder you. It actually frees you. We often think freedom means I get to do what I want. But that leads to confusion and lostness. When you're guided by the light of God's word, that, that North Star is a, as an explorer, you're actually freed to now go to around the world. Think about what happened as a result of them knowing how to chart courses. The world was discovered. The rest of the world was discovered and mapped. It was actually a way of flourishing. Look, I know colonization and exploration has some downsides. Don't miss the point. <laughs> so scripture invites us in this way by grounding us in something that is sure and certain. Look, the, the reason why we and others walk in the advice of the ungodly and stand with sinners and sit with scoffers often is because it seems like that's the way to achieve the good life. And, that, and that's what advertisers market, influencers promote, brands promise. Whether you're listening to Billy Joel, who would rather laugh with the sinners than... Nobody? Cry with the saints. Thank you, Kathy. All right. Or the beasties, boys. You've got to fight for your right to... Thank you. All right. Here's the point. There's a, there's a phrase that says, if you marry the spirit of the age, you will become tomorrow's widow. The psalmist says that these good laughs and these times are fleeting. 
And instead of securing deep joy and fullness, they lead to emptiness and loss. And the end, what we see here in, in the psalm is to be like chaff, like the wind that's blown in the wind. Chaff was the, was the outer husk of the little grain of wheat, the little kernel. And what they would do is they would grind it, and then they would take a sheet and put the, 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 the ground wheat on a sheet, and they would wave it like this. And as they waved it, the, the, the kernels would bounce up the air and would come back down on the, on the sheet, and the wind would take the chaff, the chaff because it was worthless. And it would be discarded. That's what he says is the way, uh, uh, the way of the world, the way that we often are default setting is to go with the flow. He says that's the way of destruction. That's going to be like chaff blown by the wind. Rather, the way about the, of the Lord brings about security, resolute strength and fullness. The one that we see that lives in tune with the Lord is the one who knows the good life. This is actually what we read from uh, that Richard read for us from Matthew's gospel. This is the end. Jesus preaching. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he tells that parable of there's there's those that will hear my words and build their house upon the rock, and if you discard my words, you build them on sand. And here's the reality: storms are coming, and the storm is going to hit both types of homes, but only one survives. The wisdom of the Lord says, build it on something and someone who lasts, which is himself. And the way that we do this in this psalm is by meditating and delighting in the instruction and the whole truth of who God is and what he's done, which in turn then reshapes our lives. Let's play a game, right? What are the things that you delight in? What brings you refreshment and rejuvenation in your life? And I want you to shout them out. It's participation. We're not passive. What are the things that delight you? Be bold. Come on. Fitness. What is it? <laughs> Video games? Fitness? Thank you. Bubble tea. Bubble tea. Take, amen. Taking a nap. Naps are proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. What else? Babies. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Babies. Bagels. I'm so sorry. Bagels. I was like, are you telling us something, Louis? You got more coming? All right. So, so bagels. What else? What is it? Ramen. Coffee. All right, what was that, Noah? Ice pop. Ice pop. All right. They do, especially on a hot day like this week, right? Look, the things that delight in us, that, del that delight us, are, are something that brings great pleasure, light, satisfaction to our heart and mind. It's, for me, it's a perfect, non-humid summer day. It has a great breeze, no bugs. You can sit on the beach, and read a book. Let's look at a couple of the other, two, couple of the other words here. The first is that word meditate. Often we think about meditation as, you know, like in the Eastern sense, the 
clearing the clutter of your mind by focusing on your breath. And, and there's, like, let me just say, there is some value in just taking a moment to clear your mind, take, take some deep breaths, and, and sit there in that, that silence and that quiet. But this is not what meditation here means. This is not clearing your mind of all thoughts and emptying yourself as in, like a, in, a, in a Buddhist type of way. The, the word actually meditate actually means the same thing as like mutter or to speak under your breath. Sometimes you'll also hear people like, or like to chew the cud, like a, ch- a cow that re- re- chews and then regurgitates that food. In other words, that's what we're to do with Scripture. He's saying you're to chew on it. It's actually to roll around in your mind day and night. And the word law, there's another word, the word law uh, you might have a little footnote if you're in the ESV that says instruction on the bottom. And I actually think that's a much better word for it. In other words, saying that it, it, it's instruction, the word that delights in the instruction, the teaching, the direction of God's way. It, it's not limited to like the Ten Commandments, so to speak, at Ma- that, Mo- that God gave to Moses, but, but ra- rather it, revo- it refers to the whole truth that is revealed in the Word of God. So, Let me go back then and say, what does your mind and heart go to when you hear words like delight and meditate in connection with the law of the Lord? I noticed nobody said it. That's a joke. But here's the deal. I would bet that we don't make that connection very often. Not for many of us. For some of you, I bet you that there is a feeling of guilt and shame going on in your heart right now. You're right, John. I don't do it enough. I need to do more. And you're already starting to think, all right, how can I map out my day to do better? Others of you may be frustrated because you do regularly read God's word, but there isn't delight and there isn't joy. It's just duty. You find it hard to relate reading God's word to what's actually going on in your life. Maybe because it's just, again, no knock on the daily bread. You're just reading the little half verse and going, all right, I did it. I read the verse today. But I don't know how it connects. Others of you feel numb or disinterested because it just sounds like religion and ritual that doesn't actually meet you where you are. Here's, here's, here, here's the point. The, the, the psalmist is not saying to be more religious or, or that you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Now listen carefully here. He isn't necessarily saying that you need to make sure that you have your daily reading up to date. Now, let me be clear. Reading God's word is part of what he is saying. But it's more than just checking the box. Rather, it's seeing God's word as a personal invitation to know him. To know his ways, his love, his grace, his holiness. It's an invitation to see how he weaves our lives into his. Look, practically speaking, the Bible can be hard to read at times. Both textually, both the content, but also just trying to understand what's going on. We're removed from the text and the circumstances by a couple thousand years. So it can be hard. But... And we can talk more about how to help this, but here's, if you're struggling, if this is, you're finding it hard to delight in God's word, here's what I would invite you to do. 
Start with Psalm 23. Read, even if it's so familiar to it, meditate on it, meaning chew on it. Hold it in your hand. Walk with it through the day. The Lord is my shepherd. Even just that line, the Lord is my shepherd. A shepherd is one who guides me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And, and letting that, chewing on that, rolling that over. Maybe Ephesians 1, talking about the greatness and the glory and the incredible grace of God and His work to draw us up into who He is. Let the majesty of Ephesians 1 blow your mind and satisfy your heart. Even Psalm 1, to go and I've been, this is what I've been muttering all week. Saying, God actually doesn't want less of me or less for me. He actually wants more for me. He wants me to know flourishing. And as we just sit, even if you read the Bible in a year, list, you get behind, sit in one text and chew on it, that it, that it would actually take root and bring your heart deep joy. The Lord is inviting us to have this a sense of security and rootedness because the instruction of the Lord is grounded in his unchanging character and the wisdom of the one who made all things. He knows you, he knows the world, and he says, this is how it goes. To illustrate the point, the psalmist uses an analogy of a tree that is planted by streams of water. This is also a play on words, which is really fascinating, because the word advice and counsel in, in verse 1, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah, in verse 1, it actually comes from the same word as tree, because counsel is supposed to be strong like a tree. And he goes, they think that's strong. Here's the real, where the real rooted tree is. And he paints this picture of one who walks with the Lord. He says that the one who is walking with the Lord, who finds his life in him, is like a strong tree that is planted by streams of water. You know, or irrigated streams. And I think that's important because in the Middle East, streams dry up. But an irrigated canal has water all throughout the year. And he's saying, the one who is walking with the Lord is like a tree that's planted by this irrigated canal that has water constantly through it. No matter what, the rainy season, the dry season, the hot season, the cold season, water is constantly flowing to this root to give it life. Delighting and meditating on who the Lord is and what he has done and has promised to do is like an irrigated stream that, that flows into our heart and our mind and our body. I... I'm normally not a prop preacher, but here, hold on. Um, I brought something. I was doing science experiments this week. Okay, so he, here's flowers, right? They're being nourished by the water. And there, there, there's just water that we can go. It didn't turn out as well as I hoped, but I, I put some green food dye, and you can see that the, that the flower is starting to turn green, the petals, because it's being nourished by, by the green water. 
What are we finding our nourishment in? What is flowing up in and through us? What is, what is our intake? How are we letting God's word saturate? Because what we're soaking in is what's going to come out. And the reading of scripture and meditating upon it, we're reminded then of the streams of God that flow. It is the stream of God's love for us that nourishes us. It's the stream of his grace that abound and is ever present in our lives. It's the stream of knowing that we are, we are united, we have communion and fellowship with the Lord. It's the stream of his unbreakable promises to you and his people. It is, it is being saturated and nourished by his life-giving spirit and his word. So much of our pursuit and desire is for us to experience love and grace and connection. In this psalm, in the whole of scripture, we see the invitation to stop striving for them, but rather find our nourishment in this life-giving, irrigated stream that the Lord has already prepared. The flourishing life that comes through an abiding in the Lord and his word results in fruit. So what is the fruit that comes? It says that it bears fruit in, in its season. What seasons are you in? It, it, it bears fruit in, the, in, in, in love in our relationships. To be known by our love. It, it bears fruit that we, we will be loving towards one another. It bears fruit and rejoicing in seasons of blessing when things are going well in our lives. It, it is the fruit of peace that passes all understanding when, in seasons when the, wind, we, when the winds begin to howl and the storm clouds of life gather overhead. It's the fruit of patience in seasons of suffering and in pain, when difficulty and hardship beat like a torrential downpour. We can wait patiently upon the Lord. It's the fruit of kindness in our dealing with our spouses, our children, our friends, our strangers, our enemies, and even towards ourselves, particularly when we have fallen short or failed to live as we ought. It is the fruit of goodness in our dealings with others, that we will be honest, that we'll be fair, that we'll be courteous and generous with our words and our deeds and our resources. It's the fruit of gentleness when we're attacked or maligned. We're not, we, we won't be out for a pound of flesh and revenge, but be gentle and calm. This gentleness will also mark our interactions with those in authority over us and also those who live in an authority under us. It's the fruit of faithfulness and self-control in the face of temptation and trial. You know, when we, like the Israelites, Israelites are tempted to return to Egypt even after God has freed us, when we want to run back to those old sin patterns, soaking and God's life-giving stream bears fruit to faithfulness and self-control even when temptation trial comes. Life has many seasons. Some are like a perfect spring day with the sun shining and the breeze blowing. And at other times, it's like being stuck outside in a howling blizzard. Or feeling the oppressive heat of a sweltering summer day. In all these seasons, we see that this psalm and throughout the pages of Scripture, the way to remain alert and alive and vibrant 
and not wither under the pressure. Rather, we're invited into true prosperity. And all he does, he prospers, the psalm says. That's a bold promise. That's a bold word. And not health and wealth, but flourishing and significance. And, and, and what it means is not just necessarily earthly riches and fame, but rather a deeply satisfied mind. And you'll have to forgive me if I quote Bob Dylan here because he's just right. In his song, Satisfied Mind, how many times have you heard someone say, if I had his money, I could do things my way. But little they know that it is so hard to find one rich man in ten with a satisfied mind. Money can't buy back your youth when you're old or a friend when you're lonely or love that's grown cold. The wealthiest person is a pulper at times compared with the man with a satisfied mind. When life has ended, my time has run out, my friends and my loved ones, I'll leave them no doubt. But one thing for certain, when it comes to my time, I'll leave this old world with a satisfied mind. Our corporate reading of Scripture is meant to confront us by asking what path are we pursuing and then invite us into this flourishing to have a satisfied mind. Lastly, corporate reading of Scripture teaches us. Psalm 1 does this in several ways. And even going back to that North Star, again, having that as a reference point, it actually, those explorers were able to learn about the world in ways that they had not been able to. And the same thing as we dwell and look to the, the North Star of God's Word. As we read God's Word, we grow in our familiarity and understanding. So those difficult passages, as we dwell in it, it actually becomes more familiar. I, I realize some of you would struggle to find the book of Micah. That, that, that it's, been, it's been hard to learn how to, how to read and, and know God's Word. But if we talked about the giant starting lineup, you could know it. You've spent Because you've spent time investing in something. Then you can talk about cars, or you can talk about guitars, or you can talk about BTS, or whatever it might be. You know their backstory. Because you've invested. Same thing, as we come to God's word humbly and, say, and openly, we actually grow in our understanding, and then we actually see how the story connects and how we are enfolded in that story. We also learn how to measure the blessed life. It teaches us how to measure it. It's not by likes or followers or bank accounts, fame, comfort, ease, power. And you know that. But sometimes we forget it. And we start measuring the blessed life by those things. It isn't measured by status or ethnicity or race. It's not measured by intellect or notable alumni. Rather, the blessed life is measured by our relationship to the Lord. Do you notice that? Take out... Go, blessed is the man, skip the, skip the wicked part. Blessed is the man who is delight is in the law of the Lord and on his day, on his law, he meditates day and night. In other words, the blessedness comes by the relationship to the Lord. And that's what this psalm and the scripture teaches. It tells us that we del- coming to read God's word is learning how to delight and who he is and what he's done. Namely, even as Pastor Michael preached last week, it's about exalting, seeing Jesus in all of the pages of Scripture. 
Because Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the truly blessed one. He is the one who has exemplified Psalm 1 perfectly. Unlike him, we're much more like the people in Psalm 2. If you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 2. And it talks about those, the leaders of the nations, and they're raging against God. They're going, hey, God, I don't want you to be the boss of me anymore. They're, they're, they're raising, they're shaking their fists at him and saying, let us burst our bonds apart. We don't need you anymore. We often act like that. But shaking our hands and, and saying, God, we got this, and saying, you can't do anything to us, or God, we're, we're going to show you, God. It says God laughs. It's like a kindergarten going up to the rock and saying, hey, you want to arm wrestle? The rock is going to own him. You know, Dwayne Johnson, the rock. The consequence of this break is wrath. But we also, in, in Psalm 2, we also see grace. There's a promise that the anointed, the, one of the, the, the blessed one of the Lord, is going to have the, the nations as his heritage. That there is going to be a people for him. In that... The instruction for us in verse 11 is serve the Lord with fear and, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The, Jesus is the truly blessed one. We actually have failed in so many ways to walk this out. We're much more like those people in Psalm 2, but by God's grace, through the finished work of Jesus, by, by finding our refuge in Christ, the one who came and lived and died and was raised for us, Jesus came to bring us back home. And he actually shares his blessedness with us so that we can walk with him and know the fullness of life with God as we, as we were intended to. And even as David, as he prayed at the end, at the end of our singing set, then not only would we have this information, but that it would work itself out in real life, that it would bear fruit, that would show a saltiness, a flavoring of God, that we would taste like God's people to the world around us. We would shine as God's light to those around us because we have been sitting and soaking in his word. That's why we read God's word together. It's not just to go, oh, this is what churches do. Rather, it's meant to confront us. It's meant to awaken us. It's meant to invite us. And then it's meant to teach us what it means to walk and live as God's people. It's not empty ritual. But rather, it is a gift of God that we would know the fullness of his blessedness that he shares with his people through Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I confess, and even as preparing and preaching, it is easy to disregard it. Forgive us. Pray that you would restore a deep desire to know and walk, to delight in, our, in your word. Lord, I pray that you would 
you would grant us that, that we would come grow in our delight, that it would be really refreshing, refreshing as, as, as ice cream on a summer day. It'd be as refreshing as, as a vacation at the beach. That would even be more so that it would, it would refresh and renew our souls, our minds, and our lives would be transformed by it. That we would come to know you more and more deeply and, more, and that it would bring great joy. And that even as we look to your word, that we would, we would chew on it, that we would think about it, that we would invite, invite others into the, the, those murmurings that we're having. That we would talk with one another, that we'd say, hey, what do you think about that? But I pray that we would be honest before you and with ourselves as we're confronted with your word. And that we would also be invited and warmed by your grace that invites us to know you. In Christ's name, amen.